0: To do that with you, or they, and then you can go ahead and they can head down that way. I want to invite everyone else to go with me if you have your Bibles to take a copy of it, take your copy of God's Word, or turn that app on on your device. And we're going to go to the book of Acts, chapter 18. Acts, chapter 18. Acts, 18. Acts 18, we're walking through the book of Acts, we got back into that this fall. We started it last fall, took a break for the summer, and we're in Paul's second missionary journey as we're going through the book of Acts together, and we're in chapter 18 when he is at, goes first to the Macedonian city in Greece of Corinth. And so, Acts chapter 18, I hope you found it. We will pray, and then we'll get started with that. Father, I ask, I want to pause now, Lord, and just declare dependence upon you and ask for your spirit to, we know he's real, we know he works in the word and that he is very present, Lord, but would you help us to be aware of that? And Lord, would you take your word now and use it in our lives? Father, we need you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Acts chapter 18, I'll begin, we're going to look at verses 1 through 17 this morning and um, we have, uh, we're going to ta- call this Encouragement in Sin City. is the title of our message today in these first 17 verses as we have gone. So today, this is very much about encouragement of God's weary, discouraged ministers uh, and see how God encouraged Paul here. And all of us are going to face discouragement at certain times that we all get discouraged and sometimes it's when things are good and sometimes it's when things are not going well um but, and maybe you're in a state that way today uh this was wonderful for me this week and so in some ways I actually feel like I'm getting to preach to myself and you just get to listen in um and I, I hope that's okay with you but maybe there's so many ways that all of us might feel discouraged beaten down Maybe that might be with health, or you've been just been battling something, it just keeps wearing on, and you're really getting discouraged, and it seems like it's not improving in any way. Maybe it's with your children. Maybe you've raised your children, and they've gone wayward, or you're, you're hoping that certain things begin to fr- show fruit, and you're just getting discouraged, and it's one heartbreak after another, uh, and, and it's just, you're, you're discouraged. Maybe it's with your finances. It just seems like you can't get ahead and there's always something that comes up and just when you start to get some of the credit cards paid off, something else breaks and you have to do something else or, or whatever happens and you just can't get ahead and you're just getting very discouraged. Or maybe it's in your own walk with God and your devotions and you've really tried to be consistent and it's just not uh, coming together for you and you keep slipping back into a besetting sin or maybe you're struggling with an addiction of whatever sort and, and it just seems like you're just... You're, you're just down. Maybe it's with something with your job. Um, you thought things were going to go a certain way and things haven't panned out that way. You haven't gotten promotions. You haven't um, made the contacts. You're not performing as what you're expected to or you didn't expect to be at this place at this time or the company's profits haven't done or the sales haven't come in or the, what was projected hasn't come to fruition. Or maybe you're just emotionally drained with life. There's just a lot going on and you're just tired of the turmoil in relationships, and relationships and you're just beaten down. Or maybe that might be your relationship towards your church, whether you're visiting today or this is your home church. You're just it's like, I, why can't we just get a break or what's happening with this? And you're just discouraged. And everyone in this room is going to face discouragement at some point. It's important for us to look at passages, maybe if you're not going through a discouraging time, and it's important for us to look at passages to how God would encourage one of his servants uh, in those times so that we can prepare ourselves and work with it and be uh, prepared, and, um, but especially discouragement comes towards those ministers of God. John, Ma- John MacArthur said it this way, a little appreciated truth about the ministry is that pastors and missionaries are perhaps more than other believers are subject often Um, to discouragement and Paul is very much in one of those times right now and for whatever reason we know based upon the sufficiency of the Bible uh, that he needed an encouragement at this time in Corinth and we don't know the precise reason because things seem to be going well he actually has some uh, success and some converts but you know he's been he's been Traveling, and he's been to Salamis and Paphos and Antioch, and then he's gone to Iconium and Lystra and Derby, and then this Macedo- Macedonian call, and he's in Athens and Philippi and Corinth, and after Corinth he goes on to Ephesus, and that's where he's going to be the longest. And he's here at uh, Corinth about eighteen months, and he goes to Ephesus, and he's there three years. But you know, he maybe maybe he hasn't had any downtime you know and uh it's just been one thing after another or you know the uh, it's psychologically i mean you can only rebound emotionally so much before you're just spent and all those things are there. And, and often in, in, in ministry at Paul, he would, he would go to this place and he'd see success, but then he'd have persecution. He'd go to this place and he'd see success and then have persecution. And he ran out of town here and ran out. And we saw that when he goes to Thessalonica and then to Berea and then to Athens. He's suffering and these people are just following. It's like, oh. And, and, and you can only rebound emotionally from those highs to those lows so often. Um, I was reminded much in this week's study of a wonderful chapter in uh, Charles Spurgeon's lectures to my students on the minister's fainting fits. And. Um of basically, of course, in the 1800s, uh, you didn't call it depression, you called it melancholy, and he, how he would talk about this. And that everyone's going to go through those, and people that have the high highs are going to have the low lows, and you can expect those things emotionally and things going on. And there's, So this is, I just wanted to kind of share that as a recommendation book and bring that up because I benefited from that ch- reviewing that chapter this week as well. And so um, it's somewhat the nature of ministry. And, and and you know Paul may be discouraged. He he had he had had the uh, desert, the, the separation with uh, Barnabas and uh, and John Mark, and so he and Silas. There's been that, that separation, and maybe he's suffering that betrayal or the desertion. You know, and you have friends and colleagues that might leave, and you don't know why and what's upset, and there really hasn't been like a reconciliation there, and there's not been closure, and that just wears on. And for whatever reason, of all these things, may be part of it. Paul, the spirit, the, the, the spirit of God, knows that Paul needs some encouragement. And so we're going to see that as he comes to Corinth. So we'll see encouragement in Sin City. Acts chapter 18, I hope you're there. I'll begin reading in verse 1. This is what God's Word says. And after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, And were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a manner of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since this is a matter of questions about words and names of your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. They all see Sotthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to this. This is God's word. We all get discouraged, and God gives us a wonderful example of how he encourages his servant here. And so Paul's ministry here at Corinth, this is the second longest time that he spends at any church save Ephesus where we'll see and I have some slides up here some pictures I want you to see where Corinth is so he's gone from Athens to Corinth and we're seeing here in Greece and seeing some some so the modern see I want to tell you a little bit about Corinth and I don't want to belabor this too long but I want to uh as much as the the nerds in here would love a little geography lesson and talk of history this is this is really good for background but um I want to make sure do get to have a little geography class here and vocab. Isthmus. What's an isthmus? And this is this little sliver of land that connects two bodies. And you can kind of see there. If we go to the next slide there, Mike. Um, this, this is uh, between northern and southern Greece. And you see that kind of line right there, that little connection. that looks like a bridge there between. That's where Corinth is, kind of the middle part of that, uh, that connection there. We'll go to the next slide. Um, this is Corinth. And you see that line straight across there 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 was there's a canal there now now that canal was the brainchild of Julius Caesar he didn't get to have that done and that wasn't completed at the time of Paul Claudius's emperor at that point it was started to be built in, in under Nero's reign the emperor after Claudius but it wasn't completed because of high walls, rocks, lack of funding, government taxes. And the story goes on and on and on. We still have roads uncompleted in our state because of this. And this wasn't completed, that canal, until the 1890s with modern technology. And so you can see right here, you can see a, a cruise ship being pulled through. And really one of the ideas was but, um, not going around the Cape. So this was a shortcut that saved about 200 miles for these ships. And of course, in the ancient world, that's a big deal. And so a lot of the smaller vessels, they would actually take to that isthmus, and it was about five miles across. They would literally unload the ships use slaves and and labor, carry it across, load it back into other ships on the other side and go on to Rome or whatnot. Other times they would literally take the boats out of the water, put them on rolling uh, logs and roll them the five miles and then dump them back into the water on the other side. And so that's this, so, so, you know, we'll go to the next slide here. Um, and so we'll go to Go on to the next one. Here we go. So we can kind of see. So we have that little that isthmus where Corinth is, and that made that made Corinth a very very special uh, place because it was kind of the crossroads of every way. The shipping coming across the isthmus, the also any any trade going north and south Greece had to go right through there. So it became this um, you know city of cities and really one of the, lo- the one of the first kind of mega uh, metropolis type areas. Um, Metropolis I got Superman in there. Anyway, so so there's things going on. So you can see where uh, Paul is at Athens on this second missionary journey. He's heading to to to. to we see three different groups coming here. He's heading to Corinth here. Um, Timothy and Silas are coming down through from Berea where we last saw them. Because remember he went to Athens without them. He was waiting on them. So they're coming through, and we know from other portions of Scripture that they're actually bringing with them some of the partnership the gifts the funds the offerings from uh, from churches like at philippi that gave a gift through them they brought and then we have aquila and priscilla or often we see priscilla listed first and that's probably because she was of a higher status than her husband socially and maybe even in their trade world which was okay right um and and so we see that often listen and they've come from rome they they've been uh kicked out because there was a um Claudius had kicked out Jews from Rome uh, because of a Christus, the Christus, and it was a, a lot of scholars have gone that that was actually uh, kind of the Greek word for Jesus. And so uh, they probably were believers when they got there, and evidently Paul already knew them from either that or from their trade. And so, um, it, so Corinth, Corinth is a trade... Um, Capital. I mean, it, it's become a provincial city in the Roman Empire at this time. It is known for its luxury. I mean, they, their economy is booming, and they had great influence. In fact, the um, uh, second only to Athens, uh, with, with the Olympics starting in Athens, was the Isthmian Games there. Um, Athens, if Athens was the intellectual capital of the ancient world, Corinth was the amusement and luxury capital of the ancient world. A great city and it 's interesting to see how the Gospel and the servants of the Gospel are able to adapt and minister in those various contexts paul 's ministry at Mars Hill in Athens, his ministry here at, in in Corinth we see that from his other from it, the letter to Corinth while he's there he at least we know he wrote in these eighteen months he wrote the letters back to the churches the Church at Thessalonica and possibly the Church at Philippi as well so we see some of those things going on. So if you were to describe Corinth, you would use probably two words, pride and immorality. In this great city that Paul is in. Now, he they they're very proud. I mean, they had a lot to be proud of. I mean, they they had Huge wealth. There's a lot of commerce. Uh, 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 Ephesus. If you're if you were to take a tour, um, and you know uh, of ancient, I, I haven't done this yet. One day, hopefully, um, the the ancient city that probably has the ruins and things that are excavated the most would be Ephesus, and second would be Corinth. You can still go. You can go there and see. You can actually go there online this afternoon and see a lot of pictures of ruins and things uh, of the ancient city. And you can see places where they had, um, you know, the the the. Um, Porches and things where they'd have all the wares and so much uh, uh, trade and I mean kind of the pre you know they think shopping malls everywhere the type of thing I mean, all of these folks with these uh, different wares and and businesses and so they had an, a booming economy and with that come and sometimes we can think oh well, they're all just these the, the, the immorality and the debauchery it was all the base people and the lower class but no this went all the way up to the top. And because of this, they're such an amusement, given them to amusement city, they were a very immoral city. And that may be one of the reasons when, when Paul writes um, in the letter of 1 Corinthians and he says how I came to you, how I didn't come, he says how I didn't come to you in boasting or an eloquent speech. And often when someone's down and worn out, they're weak and they don't talk like they as normally as they normally would. Because, I mean, Paul's a very educated man. But he says how he comes there weary. And he says he comes with much trembling, boasting in his weakness. So why was Paul trembling at coming to Corinth? And that might have been some of this. I mean, this is a very intimidating city to come to. I mean, can you imagine? This is like there's there's not been one missionary ever in, in Los Angeles, and you're the first one there. And there's an, there's an intimidation factor there. And so um, Paul is... He, he incarnates into the city. He's there. He's involved in trade. Uh, but it's still a very intimidating place. And in the face of this difficult and challenging relationship with the church, uh, with, with whether they're meeting in the synagogue and then moving them outside to uh, a private residence and all those things that have already happened, God sends, for whatever reason at that time, in verses 8 to 11, a vision Christ himself of three areas of encouragement for Paul, and that's going to be our outline for the message this morning. The three areas that God used in this vision to Paul to encourage him, that I think he would use that to encourage us, and I think if you're here and need encouragement today, these three areas that the vision that Paul receives here at Corinth will be uh, areas and principles for us to encourage so if you need encouragement let's look to this and got so encouragement in the face of opposition and we see this but before that it almost seems like that some really good things have started to happen here in the midst of Paul's discouragement. So you're, why is he discouraged? I mean, he has something special here, Priscilla and Aquila. I mentioned uh, that, that Priscilla's name is listed first. And these are coworkers. These are folks that were, and there's such a key thing to the life of the church. And you could almost see the success and the longevity of Paul, the increases here. He's here 18 months. Um, and one of the reasons, I believe, is because he had more of a team and he had lay leadership in this team. It is so key and crucial to the life of a church to have lay people that are giving themselves to partnering in the ministry. And Priscilla and Aquila are key ones in this. In In other books of the Bible... Uh, that Paul has written, he would talk about, He would call them his co-laborers that were dear to him. In Romans, he would say, because they, they were here in thing, and they later on we see them in Ephesus, uh, they've moved, so they're kind of a transient couple. They've lived in Rome, they're here in Corinth, they end up in Ephesus. Um, and, and possibly they even moved to Ephesus to help Paul with the ministry, e- even as business people. But in Romans, Paul mentions Aquila and Priscilla and says that they risk their necks for him. They were there, and I think that was a key thing, and I think there's a lesson there, but it says that one of the things he does with them is he's a tent maker, or literally that means a leather worker. Um, In this culture, every Jewish father would teach their sons a trade. In fact, it was said that a father who failed to teach his son a trade taught his son to be a thief, and even before, so even though Paul had gone on to rabbinical school and training with... In um, and, and great wisdom and he knew all about the Greek philosophers and he was very well educated but he had been given a trade in his childhood days from his father and that trade was a very common trade and a very lucrative trade of leather working and there's a lot, all different f- studies and theories of what this involved and whether it be tents or leather or tools or whatnot but Paul's practice was tent making and what one of his key things that this this benefited him well through life is especially him being an an evangelist going and pioneering missions excuse me but one of the key things that uh, that was a principle of Paul's is that he did not expect financial support from those from which he was trying to evangelize he didn't go up and say, hey, I want to come to a tent meeting in this, church, this town that doesn't have a church, and I want to take up offerings so that you all can pay my bills. That um, he did not take support from those to which he was evangelizing, so he used his tent-making trade as part of that. And that's a key thing for us to recognize there. Paul's practice was tent-making and not expecting financial support from those to which he was evangelizing. And then... The text tells us here in verse 5 that T- Silas and Timothy arrive. Remember, he's been waiting on them. They've come from Macedonia, and they bring with them two things that are two really good things. They bring, and we know from other passages, that he brings them good news of Thessalon- uh, from Thessalonica that of the faith and love, he tells us in other epistles, of the Thessalonians. And he writes that to the Thessalonians, how Silas and Timothy have told us of your faith and the love that you have. And so that's an encouraging thing. It's always good to hear that where you've ministered before is doing well. And then the second thing that Silas and Timothy bring with them is a gift and support and the funds from the church of probably there and also at Philippi. And so because of the financial gift that they bring, From the churches at Macedonia, and we see that in uh, Corinthians 11, and also in Philippians 4, that the Thessalonians supported them and also helped with some of the church at Philippi. Those funds freed up Paul now to kind of go on staff full-time at this point. And so uh, the text says here in the ESV that he was occupied with the Word, or his occupation became the Word. The NIV gives it that he gave himself exclusively to preaching. Basically, at this point, he's able to go full-time in the ministry. And so this is a positive thing. He has lay leadership in place. He has uh, funds in place. And he has good news from his co-laborers that have come to join him. And then they come to verse 7. And he left there and went to the house of the man named Titius Justice. And so they're, they're opposed in the synagogue. He always went to the synagogue first. He's reasoning with them. And he leaves there. And other times he's been very gracious, and it seems almost like his patience is worn out. He's like, I'm done with you guys. I'm going to the Gentiles at this point. Um, And we don't uh, don't know exactly what the motivation there was, but this is what happens. And this seems like a failure, that they're kicked out and they have to go from having a public place of ministry to now a private place of ministry in a home. But I think there's a lesson here that sometimes what's perceived as failure often has success in it. Sometimes the things that we might perceive as being a failure, there's great success in it. Because, he tells us at least of one, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Now, so the synagogue would have several elders, and one of those elders would be the ruler of the synagogue. And Crispus is that one. And he believes... Now, when you read the book of 1 Corinthians, and Paul's saying, hey, there's there's division in the church at Corinth. Uh, Some of you are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And he says, I'm thankful that I didn't baptize any of you. Except for, and he names one man and a couple others in 1 Corinthians, and Crispus is one. Paul names that Paul had baptized Crispus. It's the natural, that's what happens when you believe on Christ, you receive him, you let that profession become known publicly and identify with Christ in baptism, and that is the physical expression of the internal work of Christ. And there may be some here that need to follow the Lord in that example of being baptized. And so, uh, Crispus and Paul personally baptizes Crispus, and you can, 1 Corinthians 1.14 is where you would want to look for that. So even with fellowship of co-workers and seeming success, Paul's still discouraged for some reason. And God speaks directly to him in a vision. And as you can see there in verse 9, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, the words go red after the first sentence. So it says, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, this is the Lord being Jesus, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And this is really where I want to zone in on this morning in our message. The three principles here that the Spirit of God through Christ gives Paul to encourage a discouraged servant. And if Paul needed this, definitely you and I do. Because he gives us some things about God, about God's everywhere, how he's going to be protected, how he's omnipotent, he can control things. But if anyone didn't need a lecture on theology proper, it was Paul. Paul knew this stuff. If anyone was fearless in the face of opposition, it was Paul. So it's kind of like going up to, you know, Chuck Norris and saying, hey, I want to encourage you in this fight. You're like, what? What? I mean, it's like, why are we trying to encourage Paul? I mean, Paul knows he's the one that taught us all of our theology. Paul's the one who's fearless in the face of opposition. Why is the Spirit of God, through Jesus' words here, telling him not to be afraid and to go on speaking, and and he's with him, and he's not going to be harmed, and there's a bunch of people in this city? Because Paul is human, just like you and me. And Paul, just like you and me, suffers upsets and discouragement and so if anyone didn't need a lecture on theology or was fearless in opposition it was paul but because he's human he may have been losing a little bit of his nerve a little bit of the, the, the edge wasn't there that just didn't have it and the, the then this this vision comes and so there's three parts of this and and we want to look at that and with our time that we have remaining the first one is the presence of god he says don't be afraid Because I'm with you. I am with you. For I am with you. Verse 10. Do not be afraid. Now this, if you hear that phrase, be not afraid, or do not be afraid, I am with you. And if you've been familiar with the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, that phrase is echoing what Yahweh has said to many of his servants throughout the scriptures. That was said to Moses. Don't be afraid, Moses. I'm with you. It was said to Joshua, Joshua, be not afraid, be of good courage. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1, to the servant of the Lord in in, in Isaiah 42. This is a commissioning narrative that angels and prophets have been been used to call them throughout the ages. And I want you to note this that the same phrase and calling and promise of presence of God that Yahweh gave to his servants in the Old Testament, Jesus gives that promise of presence to his servants in the New Testament age. In fact, the Great Commission was couched in this promise. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Teach. All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age of the world. That this promise of the presence of God is there. And sometimes we need to be reminded to make our theology that we know up here get to our emotions that God is here. Sometimes we can think that it seems like God's a million miles away. And he gives this promise like he gave to the Old Testament saints, calling them in the New Testament. Jesus says it to his servants, I am with you. And he does this through the Spirit of Christ and the promise of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is with us, that God promises protection from God's wrath and his presence to his church through his Holy Spirit. God is here. And Jesus even said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And if you're discouraged as a Christian or as a servant of Christ, that this promise of God's presence should be greatly encouraging to you. He is here. And you can be a little spooky and mystical, and I won't call you a Pentecostal if you do, but even kind of close your mind's eye and imagine Christ. Sometimes I do this, and you can think I'm weirdo, and you already knew that anyway. Imagine when we're singing that we're here, gathered in his name, that Christ is walking those pews and walking that aisle, and he is with us. And he is here. And we're not alone. And then he gives the second word of, application here. So the source of encouragement is his presence, I'm with you. But then he says his his promise of protection you're not going to be attacked that you no one will harm you for I'm with you and no one will attack you and harm you verse 10. So the first area principle of this encouragement from the vision that Paul has here in Corinth is the presence of Christ and then the protection from Christ in verses 12 to 17, it gives us this important information regarding the time and date. It tells us how Gallio, who's there, and how he stands before him. And we know from secular history that this is about A.D. 52. So Paul's here about 50 to 52 A.D., because he's there for a year and a half. But this decision that Gallio, that we read earlier there, was he stands before the tribunal, is very important and has very important ramifications for the legal state of, of Christianity and it's declaring some him declaring that this is an internal battle between the Jews this is an internal Jewish nature this decision essentially gives liberty and freedom and governmental sanction to christianity at this point now so god it, what but it seems like something really negative so uh, they stayed there six months. He teaches the word of God. Gallio's proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, united attack against Paul. And they bring, brought him before the tribunal. Now, this is that what we'd see, the judgment seat, or as we've been called the bema seat. They bring him before this, this is a large platform that stood in front of the Agora, in front of the proconsul. Pro and so this is essentially, remember, this is a big capital city, a provincial city. So kind of like where, the, where a lot of the Roman uh, government uh, uh, bodies would meet and make decisions. So this is an important thing. He's there, and he's called, verse 12 says, before the tribunal. Now, it was Gallio that's there. Now Seneca and Gallio, they were two that were kind of very uh, leaders in thinking uh, about um, jurisprudence and uh, legal things and protections of, of, of religious groups and had a lot of influence in the Roman world. Uh, Seneca was actually a, a childhood tutor of Nero nero eventually came to not believe and they actually held they kind of were, were, were kind of what you would call statesmen that they would and so it was very very stately and honorable of them to say hey we're going to recognize that this is an internal uh, jewish matter here and not deal with paul in this case uh, knowing paul was a roman citizen and things like this um, that sentiment at this time was accepted and later on nero would not accept that in fact it's very ironic that um, Gallio intervenes here at Corinth to save Paul's life. And later on, Nero kills both Gallio and Paul. The same hand that would order the executions of Paul would, would order the execution of Galio. That, that, that those things of political powers and what's going on in the church are connected here. Because God's sovereign over all of it. But this prophecy that's given to him that he's going to be protected, it seems to fail. Oh, you're going to be protected. Oh, next day, someone's before the Supreme Court. <laughs> what? I thought we, you know, you're going to lose your tax-exempt status here, Paul. You know um, that, And you're like, I thought we were supposed to be protected here. But it was this Roman proconsul that was the tool that God used to protect Paul and thus allow the gospel in the church to to flourish in Corinth. And, and and so Paul stays there for 18 months, but he comes back to visit in letter. So there's at least 10 years before Nero is, is at play in here that they experience growth and freedom for the gospel in the church. But so I think this is so awesome that Jesus promises here in verse 10 that, that no one's going to attack or harm you. There's this promise. And the means by which Jesus uses to fulfill that promise to Paul is the Roman proconsul. How cool is that? That God can use whatever he wants and whomever he wants to bring his purposes to pass. I mean, that's that's just awesome. And the, the the song comes to mind, the children's song of He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got me and you, brother. He's got He's got the politicians, He's got the Congress, He's got the Supreme Court, He's got the whole world in His hands. He He is sovereign. We're looking on Wednesday nights of trusting God and His, 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 his man will make plans, and there's so many of the Proverbs that talk about this. But but it all what God decrees comes to pass. I mean He is what He says happens. God is sovereign. And He will protect you, and that there's a promise there that we can apply to believers today. God has a purpose for you. He has good works, Ephesians says, before, prepared ahead of time for you to do. And until He's done with you, you're indestructible to God. It doesn't mean you need to be crazy and start bungee jumping and doing a lot of extreme sports. I mean, if you like, if that's your thing, fine. But, but, but it doesn't mean to be reckless. But, but, but you don't need to be scared all the time because if you're in that situation, there's grace to help in that time of need. And there's there's the time of that. So. Don't be, So be encouraged. There is protection. So his levels of encouragement from the presence of Christ and the protection that Christ would give, Christ brings that protection through the Roman courts. But then the third line of level of encouragement, and this is where some of you are going to get upset with me, and, and that's okay. We can talk about it later, and I want to say this in love. But the third level that Paul uses to encourage his servant, who is discouraged in ministry, is the sovereignty of God in predestination or the providence of God in salvation. Because he says here, for I have many in this city who are mine, or I have many in this city. So God speaks directly to Paul, encouraging him to remain in Corinth, despite his frustrations, Because apparently God has many people in this city to redeem. Now here's the key. This isn't much people in this city is an unusual expression. And when we come to the Bible, we got to let the Bible speak. And we can't let our system or our background or our view or our logic impose on the Bible. This is the sole authority of faith and practice. The Bible gets to say it. And so it's easy for us to, well, logically, blah, 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 blah. But no, you've got to let the text speak, even the ones you don't like, okay? And so if you have a system of thinking about God that you have to take certain passages of the Bible out, you might need to rethink your system, okay? And I'm saying that on both sides of this deal, okay? Um, that, that, that we buy our theology by the piece, not by the kit, okay? That we want to let the text speak. And so Paul says he is much people. And what's interesting about this is this is an unusual expression because it calls these people, Jesus' people, who are not yet believers. Jesus made a statement like this in the gospel when he says, other sheep I have that are not of this fold. He was speaking specifically of the Gentiles, but he's talking about those Gentiles who have not believed and become part of his fold yet. So whether you want to splice this as foreknowledge or predestination, the net result is that God's sovereignty and salvation produces confidence and encouragement towards His servants and bolsters them for evangelism. J.I. Packer said it this way, so you might say, whoa, 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 if we believe in this, like kind of a predestination or a foreknowledge or whatever, how are you going to splice that? Isn't that going to make people not want to evangelize? No, 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 no. It's actually the opposite. It's literally the opposite. Packer said it this way. Far from inhibiting evangelism, faith in the sovereignty of God's judgment and grace is the only thing that will sustain it. For it is the only thing that can give us resilience that we need if we are to evangelize boldly and persistently and not be daunted by setbacks. So Paul's had setbacks from city to city. And what is something that can bolster his resilience to keep proclaiming the gospel was belief in God's sovereignty. That no one gets saved because of the way I preach, or the jokes I tell, or the eloquence, or lack of eloquence, or how charismatic I am, or how winsome I was, or whether I closed a deal, or what I got them to say yes three times before I invited them to pray a prayer, or however that, however you want to spin that, uh, or I manipulated them, or I, I drew the net in the right way, or I had the right type of dinner, or got the right type of coffee when I met them to tell them about the g- gospel, or or whatever. You know, I should have got half calf instead of full calf because they were a little jittery when I was trying to share the gospel to them, and if I'd have gotten half calf, they wouldn't left and rejected Christ but if I'd have gotten the, you, you know I mean you're like what no Jesus saves not me not you and so and we all believe this if you pray for people to be saved you believe that God is the one who does it right Um, the, and, and so the method of evangelism there's only one method of evangelism and that's present the gospel that's it and there's one enterprise of presenting the gospel, and that's love. Genuine, respect, friendliness, reasoning. This is it, and this is what Paul does. And so some people might say you might have some different views about the order of salvation and what happens before belief and whatever, but, you know, God's outside of that order, and he can declare the end from the beginning. So if he wants to say, I have much people in this city, and they haven't believed yet, he's God, he's allowed to do that, because he's already watching this and Rewind. And he's declared them. And whether you split that as foreknowledge or predestination, you, it's the same thing. God chose, God picked, God's the author and finisher of faith. And so, um, and, and, and some might appeal to this to justify unscriptural practices of evangelism. Either maybe being uh, just jerks to people or uh, not sharing or not inviting or not, ha- not imploring them or not giving an offer to all or not saying Jesus died for you because I don't know if you did or not or things like this. And Mike Barrett, who's actually a professor at a Puritan Reformed seminary, said it this way. He says, they, it's some, he goes that some appeal to these is for unscriptural practices of evangelism. He says that they either hesitate to offer the gospel to sinners indiscriminately or else they clout the invitation of the gospel in, in such guarded terms that the sinner is constantly looking inside of himself for signs of grace rather than outside of himself to Christ. But this should not be a hindrance of evangelism. Any understanding of the gospel that prevents the free, its free offer to sinners manifests a gross misunderstanding of the gospel. Any understanding of the gospel that prevents its free offer to sinners manifests a gross misunderstanding of the gospel. And, and John Stott said it this way, that believing God's sovereignty and salvation, he says this conviction is the greatest of all encouragements to an evangelist. And this is what encouraged Paul and gave him resiliency to stick it out in Corinth and preach the gospel there. The word of God is the means, and notice he says here, um, verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Oh, church, I hope you get this. That it is the word of God that grows the church. It is the teaching of the word of God that draws people to himself. It is the word of God that that doesn't return void, and as it says in Isaiah fifty-five, it's it it's the seed that's watered and it springs forth. It is the word in Psalm one and Psalm one nineteen. It's the word of God that gives life and joy. And sometimes we think, you know what'll bring life and joy to our church, and we come up with a million different ideas and a million different programs. But you know what it is? It's the word of God, and so being a word-centered ministry, getting centered in the Bible. This is what brings life and joy. And this is what Paul gives himself to. He's occupied with it. And so, I don't know if you're discouraged this morning or not. And you may be going through a time of discouragement. And you may be, you you, you probably will at some point if you're not right now. And I hope that the way that Jesus encourages this discouraged servant in Paul will be an encouragement to you. What was that encouragement for Paul? Paul. The presence of Christ, that He's there, He's with us, that He's going to protect, that nothing's going to harm you, and then that He's predestined those. So less than being a deterrent to evangelism, it's a motivator because there's like guaranteed results at some point. It's not all dependent upon me. That, as we sung, that, that, that he's already said at the end of the book that before him there is a throng of people from every kindred, tribe, and nation worshiping before the throne. Some of those nations and tribes we haven't gotten the gospel to yet. But he already said it's going to happen in Revelation. And we get to be part of that cause, church. We get to share it. I mean, we're on the winning side. You know, I mean, the game's done already. But the means that God uses is your prayers and your witnessing and your, I mean, I mean—that and your efforts. So, so, so preach and evangelize and, and, and persuade and reason and talk and beg and plead and be- know that God's already gonna do it. And that's awesome that we get to be a part of that. And I hope the, the presence, protection, and the predestination that the servant of Christ that Christ gives to his servant to encourage him will be something that will encourage you as well. So let's pray together. Heads bowed, eyes closed. And we're just going to respond quietly. Just in the quietness. You may be here and you're not a believer. And seeing this message that would compel people to go From West Virginia to Central America, that would compel Paul to go from Tarsus to Corinth, to leave Athens, to go to Corinth, to face opposition, to face persecution. This message is the message of life in Christ. And you may need to believe this and come to Christ. And we would love to talk to you. So if you're here and you don't know Christ, uh, we just want to encourage you to, while we're in the quiet, if you just want to slip to the back or to the front, we'd we'll, we'll love to have someone take a Bible and show you how you can know, you know, Christ as your Savior. You don't even have, you don't have to do that. You could maybe talk to us after the service or at any point. You just need to believe right now in your seat. To Christians, I don't know how you're discouraged today, whether family or finances or your job or your emotions or church or whatever it is, but I, I hope that you would remember this encouragement from God's presence, protection, and predestination, that these would be things that would encourage you. And let's just spend some time responding to him and receiving this word of encouragement today. Father, we thank you so much for this passage. And Lord, there are truths here that are hard for us to understand. But Lord, we all may face discouragement this week. And Lord, we thank you for this example. If Paul needed to be encouraged, then we definitely need to be encouraged. Lord, would you help your presence and you being sovereign over everything and you protecting us. And Lord, would you help these things to be things that we would renew our minds and be encouraged by it, to, to press on for the cause, that we'd be, be, be faithful to you, uh, that we'd be uh, fervent in sharing the gospel, that we wouldn't be discouraged thinking that that person will never receive you, because that's out of our hands. Lord, help us to be passionate the way Paul was. Help us to depend on the word of God to do its work. Lord, I pray that you'd encourage your people We thank you so much for this time we've shared together this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope you have a great afternoon. I want to remind you about the team meetings tonight at 6. And I hope you'll stick around and fellowship with one another and um, uh, get to know someone you haven't got to talk to. The the winds have a a table in the back. You want to take some time and uh, visit with them and maybe ask them some questions about their ministry. God bless. Have a great afternoon.